Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And today I've got a great show for you, as always. I've got Beverly Canaris already in my studio, so you know I'm off to a good start. It's going to be wonderful. Dr. Greg Heddington is going to join me. He's going to teach on Philemon. And then we've got a great second hour planned as well. Rob Reno is going to be on the program uh, and Chris Palmer. So that is going to be a wonderful show. I'm so glad you're with me today. And if you are... um, not in over 90 degree temperature, way to go, because uh, it seems like everybody else is, and it's been pretty toasty here in the Twin Cities area today. I would say it's around 90 something. Bev, what is it? 95. 90. <laughs> is it 95? <laughs> it's 95, yeah. Wow. But so. that's on the freeway, so, you know, that, that gets pretty warm. Yeah. So we're going to talk uh, to Bev today about God's guidance in David's life. It's quite a story. And do we know how to seek guidance from God? That's the question we're going to talk about today with Bev. Bev, you um, are kind of rejuvenated studying the life of David and God's guidance in his life. I was. You know, I've I've read this many times in in the Bible, in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles, about the life of David. But what really was standing out to me was how many times he sought the Lord. It's like he never really took a major step any place without seeking the Lord. And then when we see his life um, going on, forward, we noticed that when he didn't, nothing is recorded about seeking the Lord. David made some pretty big errors. So um, interesting observation on David's life, but there's so much we can learn on how David did that. I think it's so important to know how to seek God's guidance. A lot of us um, question God's guidance. Um, we, We wonder, are we really recognizing God's guidance? Or is this just something we made up in our own head? That's always a fear. Yeah, it sure is. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. So uh, let's take a look at some really practical things that David dealt with and how he sought the Lord for the guidance that he needed. Um, I really wanted to look at David, observe and learn from him, and then also to learn how God responded to him. It was a two-party deal here. So let's look at some of the examples in the Bible and find some very helpful truths or takeaways when we're trying to seek God's guidance for ourselves. Well, the first two examples um, are going to be from a time when David was on the run from Saul, King Saul. A little background here. he David, as a young boy, had been anointed king, and yet there was another king reigning, King Saul, but the, the uh, kingdom of Saul was hindered in many ways from Saul's own sin. Um, David, as a young man, killed Goliath and then entered Saul's army and became a leader of the troops. And he was very successful, so successful that Saul became insanely, literally, jealous and wanted to kill David. So David has to flee and is on the run. So here we have in 1 Samuel 23, three different times God goes and seeks guidance from the Lord. Let's look at just the first few verses here. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, 
go attack the Philistines and save Kilah. So here we're having a situation where David is on the run now, and he, but yet he hears that there's a city in Judah that's in trouble. So he wants to know if he should go and help, even putting himself at danger. But then his men said to him, we're here in, we, here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah, for I am giving going to give the Philistines into your hand. So what do we learn here about guidance just from this little scene of, from David's life? First, we learn that we can ask and we can ask specifically. I loved how specific David was. And you know what? The Lord responded specifically to David. David was to go and help this city that the Philistines had invaded. Now, David's men who followed him were not so sure about the guidance, right? So David returned again to the Lord and asked what he should, if he should indeed go. And he also included that he was giving, and God included that he was giving the Philistines into his hands. Now, David's men could be okay since they had that kind of confirmation and clarity. And you know, this story kind of reminded me of Gideon. Remember Gideon and what he, how he was given guidance, but then what did he need from the Lord? the fleece, mm-hmm. the whole fleece situation, <laughs> dry and then damp, and, and he had to have that happen a couple of times. Now, it's a divided opinion if that was wise or not. But I do find that um, often I do look for some kind of guidance and, and confirmation. And sometimes it's just a matter of taking that first step to see if indeed this is God's guidance. But if I never take that first step, I'm not going to maybe know. So... This summer, I had a situation where I I was sitting in church and and I had an idea come to me that I thought was of the Lord um, to get this little group together of some women, young women, to study the Bible this summer, uh, just a real small group. And so I sent out the invitations, got the material, and it just didn't work. Nobody was really available. It was difficult and didn't even hear back from one of them. So I thought, you know, Lord, what was all that about? But I believe that I was obedient. I took the first step. Did it turn out how I had envisioned it? No, but we don't know what God's plan is here. It might have been planting seeds for another time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But that that's just an example of you have to sometimes, in order to get that confirmation, take that first step. I'm really glad you shared that, Bev. Yeah. I'm sure there's other people that think, well, who would say no to Bev Canaris if she said, do you want to get together and study <laughs> the Bible, right? Well, and you're, you got three people. of them. No. Two of them did. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, you just you just have to. Um, I've walked with the Lord long enough to know that it's really not so much about my ideas. It's really about just obediently step one step at a time, following the Lord. And I did my part. Right. I did my part, and um, I just trust Him with the rest. And I try not to feel bad, like I failed or I didn't hear the Lord. I just set all that aside and said, Lord. I did what I felt you asked me to do, and then I can move on. Um, but these men really wanted that confirmation of success, and God did give it. But it's also true that continued fleecing of God, as I like to, as I like to call that, um, it could really reveal a lack of faith. Like, I'm not going to go forward. I'm not going to do this. It, you just keep wanting more and more and more and more uh, assurances. It really can point to two things, three things, really, a lack of faith, a lack of obedience, and you're hoping for a different answer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that human nature, though? Mm -hmm. But you know what? 
I think this is a principle here. Success is not the only marker for God's will. Sometimes failure is a marker of God's will, that there are things to be learned here. There are um, things that you can't see in failure that God is doing. And so he uses it all. Now, David, in this chapter, the 23rd chapter of 1 Samuel, he asks for a third time for the Lord's guidance, just a few verses down. And here David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard of heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. This is where he was hiding out. The citizens of Keilah surrendered me to him. Will they surrender me? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. And David asked again, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. So this was another interesting little picture of David seeking the Lord's guidance. Um, David tells the Lord the situation and then asks questions again, and the Lord answering with just two words. Did you notice that? He will Mm -hmm. and they will. Mm, I like that. I do too. You know... um, Sometimes it can just be a little no in your head or a little go or pick up the phone or, um, you know, flee. It, it doesn't have to be lengthy, complicated, or in the King James Version for God to guide us. It can be just little words we hear and we know what he's saying to us. Um, he gave David the guidance he needed, so he moves out of Keilah and away from Saul's grasp. What I see here is, again, asking God specific questions. So what are you looking for guidance on? Have you stopped, paused to ask God questions, and then in faith wait and listen and and be observant and expectant that God can guide you? David calls himself a servant of God there. That's, that's a big point. That's not a minor point in this passage. And I think he called himself God's servant. He was showing that he was willing to obey whatever God told him. He was going to take orders from God. You know, have you, listener, asked for guidance? Or are you stumbling depending on your own insight? Do we see ourselves as a servant of God, ready to obey the guidance he gives? If we're really seeking God's guidance, we have to have that attitude of integrity that you're willing to obey when you get the guidance, <laughs> mm, right? Yeah. Some people yeah. say, God, I want guidance. What are the options? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's good. I love yeah. that line, Bill. Well, now you might be asking, okay, I believe it, that God does speak directly and clearly, but does he do this today? You know, you think, well, this is the Bible and this is David. This isn't my life. I'm wondering what, you know, I should have my children do for summer activities, for heaven's sakes. But you know what? There is, God does still speak to us today and he speaks to us often. Most often he speaks to us as we read the Bible, God's word. Probably 98% of the time, this is how God speaks to me on a regular basis. Every morning when I'm reading the Bible, I feel as if God is speaking to me. And almost all topics of life are addressed either specifically or in principle in God's Word. This is why we have to be constantly reading and studying the Bible. It's so important in seeking God's will for our lives. If we are saturated in God's Word, 
we're going to have some pretty clear guidance most of the time. But God also speaks to us through other people and circumstances. However, word of caution there, they need to always coincide with what God's word says. Another way that God speaks to us is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in each one of us when we have received Christ as our Lord and Savior. Scripture says actually that we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the mind of Christ in us. Now, I have personally had countless examples of each of these ways that God has guided me. Um, I don't hear a voice audibly Bill, aren't you thankful that I don't hear those voices? Mm, But a still small voice in my mind that I have come to discern as the voice of the Spirit of God within me. An example is this podcast. So I'm laying in bed, it's late at night, and I'm kind of wrestling, thinking, you know, uh, going over my day with the Lord, and then I'm thinking about, I've got the radio slot coming up, what am I to teach here, what is it? And he brought to mind a verse that I had just read that morning, and I had just been reading about David. So um, all of a sudden, the idea came to me, it's David seeking guidance. That That is so interesting to me. I, I almost wanted to get out of bed and start writing down my thoughts because it was it felt so inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to hear more about the inspiration, and I love the inspiration because we're learning about it right now. Beverly Canaris is my guest. She taught Bible Study Fellowship for over 30 years and is a uh, host Uh, of a co-host of the podcast, She Is Becoming. We'll take a break and we'll be right back with uh, more Beverly Canaris. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Do we know how to seek guidance from God? Would we recognize it if we saw God's guidance? That's the topic that we're talking about today, and we're discussing David's um, life and God's guidance in David's life with Beverly Canaris. Bev, I don't want to waste any more time. Let's jump back into our discussion. Well, let's jump back into another example of how David sought the guidance of the Lord and how God guided him. Going on now into 1 Samuel chapter 30, um, these the enemies of Israel, the Amalekites, had raided a town called Zechleg. And Zechleg was where David and his men and their families had set up camp. Now the men were all away fighting different battles. And so they had left their, their families and all their cattle and everything left there in that city. The Amalekites came and they burned Zechleg and they had taken the women and the children captive along with all of their the herds and things like that, all the booty. When David and his men returned to camp, the men are so outraged. It says here in scripture, they wept until they had no more strength and they are blaming David. It says that they wanted to kill him. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning David Each one was bitter in spirit because of sons and daughters. But then scripture goes on to say, but David found strength in the Lord. David is desperate. 
But in his desperation, he turns to the Lord. Right now, at this point, the Lord was his only ally. Verse 9, David inquires of the Lord, Shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake them? God answered, Pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David and his men find the raiding party. They recover everything. Now, what do we learn about God's guidance here? Well, first of all, really some good practical things. Don't let panic or urgency of the situation keep you from seeking God's will. David was not in this alone, and neither are you, and neither am I. Panic can cause us to act in the flesh and not in the spirit. It's best to pull back and seek direction from the Lord rather than to think we know how to act now. You know, few things need to be decided along, um, immediately. You can take your time to make a decision most of the time. Slow down. Seek the Lord. Act. Don't react. Another lesson here on guidance might be that a leader especially has an obligation to seek the Lord on behalf of others. This is what David was doing. So that's parents, pastors, leaders, all kinds of business leaders. David didn't rail on the Lord or blame him for his circumstances either. He was really seeking God, what do I do now? Instead, he turned to him. When we're hurting or on the defense, it's so easy to be angry at the Lord, turn our back on him, and not seek the Lord, uh, or just skip it altogether because we're in such panic. And that it, it always pays off to take a moment and to seek the Lord, even when dear, dear Peter was sinking in the water. What did he pray? He was sinking in water. Lord, help. That's pretty quick. So you always have time for those kind of arrow prayers. Well, another example from David might be seeking guidance is um, from 2 Samuel verses 1 through 4. The historical context here is that King Saul, his son Jonathan, had both been killed in battle. David now, as a young man, uh, was called, anointed by God to be that next king. But the, And this really was well known among the people, and God confirmed it again and again. So with Saul dead and David who would no longer now have to run, be on the run from this jealous, crazy Saul. He could more safely settle once again in Judah. Now, with all these new developments, what is David's next move? I admire David's patience and his humility, not to think he knows what is the next thing that he should be doing, what is the next part of God's plan for him. He didn't presume to know God's will. Presumption can get us in a lot of trouble. God responds to David and tells him he should indeed go up to Judah. David asks where in Judah, and God answers him to Hebron, where indeed the people of Hebron anoint him king. So here are some takeaways in this little vignette of guidance. We cannot presume always to know God's will. The circumstances and the timing might seem great to us, but not be a part of God's plan. David could have very easily run ahead of God, but David did not rush in. He waited on the Lord's plan, really his plan. Patience and not assuming is key in discerning God's will. We also have a situation in um, uh, further on when David is a new king and the Philistines once again come out to uh, conquer Israel and David asked the Lord again, shall I go out against the Philistines and will I succeed? And the Lord responded to David again, saying he's to go 
and that the Lord would surely deliver the Philistines into David's hands. But here's what's unique about this story. This is what happens. So David went and um, he, he did defeat these enemies. And he said this, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. I loved that verse. That verse really uh, just stood out to me. As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. And I thought, wow, that's what how God defends us. I love that. So what are the lessons here? Well, the lessons here are when you're seeking guidance, realize your own weakness. David could have just gone out and, you know, I'm king. I'll make these decisions. This is crucial for the person seeking the Lord's guidance. If we think we got this, that's often pride. But God can give us confidence when the Lord is with you. And when the Lord is with you, you're always in the majority. And then lastly, in 1 Chronicles 14, we have more details of how the Lord uh, guided David uh, once again against the Philistines. Here we learn that David, that God... uh, gave David a specific battle strategy. I love this. He was to go behind the invading army, wait for the sound in the poplar trees, and then he was to go forward because the sound of the trees, the Bible says, is the sound of the Lord going before them. David followed the Lord's guidance and had victory. Takeaway here, David went against conventional wisdom of the culture and of war and instead trusted God's guidance. And it's a picture for us today. When we are in a battle, we are to battle God's ways. We're to put on our defensive armor from Ephesians 6, and our weapon is the word of God. Second Corinthians says we fight with uh, weapons not of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we're to fight God's battles, not in the natural instincts, but seeking his, his way. You know, David wrote at the end of his life some beautiful psalms and a prayer at the end of of some of these books, especially 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine, he wrote this, You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light, and the Lord, audience, listeners, can do the same for you. The Lord is your lamp. The Lord will turn your darkness into light as he seeks and he wants to guide his people, Bill. I Sometimes I think we think the Lord plays takeaway, you know, hide the ball mm. um, <laughs> from us. And he's not. He wants us to know his will more than I want to know his will. Let, let that be an encouragement, especially if you are in a place of struggle today. Second uh, Samuel twenty two twenty nine. you, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. That's a great way to end. I love that. Verse. Great, a great mm-hmm. reminder. Yeah, uh, Bev, always, uh, always great teaching. Thank you so much for uh, being so well organized in your thinking. Again, you are setting the, um, uh, you are modeling what a good Bible study is. Mm. You do it so well. I love it. I love yeah, it. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Beverly Canaris has been my guest, and again, she taught Bible Study Fellowship for over 30 years and is co-host of the podcast, She is Becoming, which is available on Spotify, that kind of thing. All the, all the, all the platforms, yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, my friend Dr. Greg Heddington is going to teach on Philemon. That's next. Be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back. So glad you're joining me today. And you know, I always love talking to my friend, uh, Dr. Greg Heddington. And because we're longtime friends and we love each other and we like to kid each other quite a bit, he told me that in preparation for today's message, which we're studying Philemon, he told me to read Philemon chapter two. Uh, so, well, that's a tough one because there's just uh, there's just the one, uh, the one chapter. <laughs> yeah, <it's cool. laughs> we got some ground to cover today. We've got the letter uh, Paul's letter to Philemon, which I am excited to talk about. And thank you so much for once again being our teacher. Great to be here, Bill, and yep. welcome to our one and only study of Paul's letter to Philemon, written about 62 A.D., which may have been the year he also wrote Colossians and Ephesians. Now, you can pronounce it Philemon like we do here in, in Texas, but if you want to be a little more Greekish, or should I say Grecian, you could probably pronounce it the way it should be pronounced in Greek, which is Philemon. So, this letter is about 25 verses, and Paul writes it from Rome, where he is under house arrest. Philemon is a wealthy citizen with a home in the town of Colossa, and we know he owns at least one slave, to be sure, named Onesimus. Philemon was led to Christ uh, through Paul's ministry in Ephesus about eight years earlier, so Paul has known him as a friend and fellow worker for years, and the believers meet in Philemon's house. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral one, the dilemma. The details are details, whichever we want to say it, are that Onesimus, who is the slave of Philemon, has presumably robbed his master and then run away to Rome, which, by the way, is about 1,000 miles away from Colossae, which would be the difference between Dallas, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona. So he's hoping to be swallowed up and disappeared in the enormous metropolis of Rome, which had about one million people that day and was the largest city in the world. But... In the providence of God, Onesimus hears the preaching of Paul while in Rome, and he comes to faith in Jesus. So after that sermon, Onesimus walks up to Paul and confesses that he's a slave who has run away from his master named Philemon, whom, incredibly, by God's providence, Paul already knows very well Hmm. from the time he was preaching in Ephesus. In fact, Paul also knows Philemon's wife and someone named Archippus, who may be Philemon's son, we're not sure, but Paul does call him a fellow soldier in the ministry. Now, what to do? Perhaps Onesimus should remain with Paul, who needs all the help he can get with the believers in Rome, because he is, after all, under house arrest. But what about the slave's responsibility to his master back in Colossae? The law permitted a master to execute a rebellious slave, but Philemon is now a believer. Yet if Philemon forgives Onesimus, how would the other masters and their slaves react? And furthermore, if Philemon punishes Onesimus, how would it affect his testimony for Jesus? This is a dilemma. Roman numeral two, Roman slavery. Before we even consider this dilemma, we cannot understand this epistle without understanding something about the status of slaves in the first century Roman world. There was an estimated 5 to 10 million slaves in the Roman Empire out of a total of 50 million people. And since slaves made up about 10% of the population, you can see why they could be a threat to the paranoid Roman government with their Roman peace and Latinx 
Pax Romana, which to them was the most valued of all values. So there were also numerous slave rebellions, and some of them, if you've seen the 1960 movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, it's about an epic slave revolt that actually did occur in history in the first century, and it lasted for two years, and the Roman government is still terrified about what took place. Now, slaves were considered property and not people, so they were under the absolute control of their master. A slave owner could beat or even kill a slave if he or she chose. Furthermore, some people with economic debt sold themselves into slavery until their debts were paid off and they could eventually buy their way back to freedom. So the lives of some slaves were not always as miserable as the rest of them. Onesimus had run away from his owner, and Philemon had every right to brand him with a Roman letter F on his forehead, which in Latin meant fugitive, which, of course, he would have that forever. Or Philemon could execute him. He had the right to do that. Roman numeral three, does Scripture condemn slavery? Okay, let's deal with this controversial issue. This is an issue that has bothered believers throughout the centuries and has been an embarrassment for some people. Why doesn't Paul condemn slavery on this occasion, or why doesn't he condemn it in his letters? Furthermore, why doesn't Jesus or any New Testament writer speak against slavery? That's an important question, because we are certainly opposed to slavery today. I'll try to give a clear reply to this. The social and economic structure of Rome was built around slaves. Roman society would never have voluntarily freed its slaves, and any attempted revolt would have been crushed savagely through crucifixions, as we did see in the movie Spartacus. And crucifixion, evidently, was a Roman favorite uh, as a way to kill any kind of felonious act. A familiar proverb, in fact, for the Romans at this time was, quote, so many slaves, so many enemies. Now, the average slave sold for a year and a half worth salary of a daily laborer, even though educated and skilled slaves were priced as high as 10 times that much. So Romans would not just volunteer to give up their valuable slaves. Now, our creator God had a plan from the very beginning to have his son come to earth for only three and a half years of public ministry. That's a very brief time, so the emphasis of Jesus' preaching focused on three things. Number one, the love of God. Number two, the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' death on the cross, which anyone can receive who will trust him. And then uh, number three, uh, the Holy Spirit, who would guide and empower those who trust him. Think of those words. Those were such radical new teachings to the entire world, but they only changed the lives of relatively few people by the time Jesus left to be with his Father in heaven. And if Jesus had put an emphasis on ending slavery, well, to say the least, that would have diluted and confused the message that was already a difficult message for most people about God's love for them 
and how God wanted people to understand the message that they could love and have a connection with him. Now, Jesus does preach that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and Paul strikes a blow for slavery in that he directs people, uh, when he writes, he writes a letter to the Galatian church, and in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it would be centuries later, but the seeds were sown that led eventually to the abolition of slavery, beginning in England and then crossing the pond to America much later. That's all I'm going to say about the issue of slavery, because we need to return to the dilemma that Philemon faces and understand, Roman numeral 4, why this letter is in the canon of Scripture at all. Philemon is in the canon of Scripture for two reasons. Number one, because Paul asked Philemon to sacrificially forgive his slave, and Paul says in verse 16 of Philemon that Onesimus is no longer to be considered a bondservant. Now, that's another word for a slave who's able to buy their way out of slavery. But rather, Onesimus now is a beloved brother in Christ. In other words, he's to be involved in the family of faith. Martin Luther said this epistle is a noble example of Christian love. How so? Because Paul is willing to make the sacrifice of returning Onesimus, even though Paul would much rather that Onesimus be a partner with him in his ministry, since Onesimus is now living up to the purpose of his name, which literally means useful. There's a Greek word for the day. Onesimus literally means in Greek useful. However, Paul will not only sacrifice his opportunity to work alongside Onesimus in ministry, but he also tells Philemon if Onesimus owes him any money or stole any possessions, then, as Paul says in verse 18, put it on my account. Wow. Now that is true forgiveness. It sure is. He's using his own money as collateral for any debts owed by Onesimus. I believe that the number two reason Philemon is in Scripture is because also this is, uh, even though this literally did occur, it can also be seen as a metaphor for forgiveness on a larger scale. Just as Paul is willing to pay the debt owed by Onesimus, Jesus paid the much, much greater debt of our sins with his life on the cross. Mm-hmm. And just as Paul says Onesimus is no longer to be considered a mere slave to Philemon as a brother in Christ, we as believers are no longer to be considered as mere sinners to our Lord. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been freed from the chains of being prisoners to sin. And yes, we will continue to sin, but not in an endless, hopeless, addictive way with no power to break free. And Paul tells Philemon to forgive the sins of Onesimus, and we are forgiven our sins by the blood of Jesus. As the hymn says, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. So that's a close-up view of the importance of Philemon. Hopefully, we don't know for sure, but hopefully that he would be forgiving his slave Onesimus. Now, when we view this incident as a metaphor for us, we move from the close-up focusing on Onesimus to the 20,000 view of Roman numeral 4, how does the forgiveness of Jesus affect us? And to expand this view, we look to the words of Ephesians to see God's big plan for the human race, his meta-narrative, and listen to the good news that is contained 
in this one sentence from Ephesus, Ephesians. Roman numeral 6, God's big plan, Ephesians 1. Listen to these words. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness for our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And we say, well, what is the plan? Paul says the plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And that's it. That is God's big plan, to unite all people on earth into one family and to be reconciled with him under his lordship. And it was the mystery that was not understood until Jesus arrived. And after his death and resurrection, the uniting of people could occur because, as Colossians 1.27, it's all about Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, we were born spiritually dead, but then we had the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come into us. And it's a revolutionary idea because many people think they can make their way by their own effort to, to God. But there's, there's nothing we've done, nothing we could ever do to be worthy of his grace grace because we're perfectly imperfect and bill i have got a, a quotation from saint augustine in the fifth century which graphically describes our impossible attempt to save ourselves apart from god's grace but i think this might be time for a break oh there's the cliffhanger you're getting good at this greg <laughs> i tell you and i can hardly wait to find out what that augustine quote is dr greg headington is my guest we're talking about uh philemon today the book the letter that paul wrote to philemon we'll be right back after a short break faith radio and afternoons with bill podcasts are available because of listener support if you are a supporter thank you so much becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com Welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Greg Heddington. I think he's taking a class in radio teaching because he left us with this big cliffhanger about something Augustine is about to say. Greg, I'm going to turn it back over to you. What did Augustine say? Okay, Bill. Well, let me just uh, give a first uh, quick review on the first part of the lesson. Uh, Number one, we talked about slavery in the first century Roman Empire. Number two, does Scripture condemn slavery? And if not, why not? Three, why the letter of Philemon is even in Scripture. Number four, how the forgiveness of Jesus affects us. And number five, God's big plan in Scripture, which is to unite all people. Now, before the break, I said there's nothing we have done or ever could do to make us worthy of God's grace. He he simply loves us. The 5th century church father, Augustine, not to be confused with Augustine grass, that's a kind of grass, Uh, Augustine graphically describes our impossible attempt to save ourselves apart from God's grace. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Augustine, but he was so brilliant that it's like he was an alien who dropped down Hmm. to earth from outer space. In fact, Martin Luther adopted much of of Augustine's uh, theology for himself 11 centuries later after reading Augustine. So here's what Augustine says about the impossibility of, of saving oneself apart from grace. He writes, All of humanity is in a sinful state. We're sinking in quicksand, and the more we struggle, the further we sink. Mm. But we're thrown a rope, 
and we have the choice of taking the rope and being pulled to safety or not. But we can take no credit for being rescued. That's it. Wow, that's so good. It is. And Jesus, of course, is that life rope. Now, think about the consequences we have suffered because of our sin and how we were going to continue suffering in that awful same way if we'd not met Jesus. The Apostle Paul talks about God's big plan in Ephesians and expresses the importance of humankind receiving this good news that had been a mystery for so long. Sometimes we forget what our condition was before Ephesians expresses the plight of unbelievers in very realistic terms. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, beginning verse 1. Paul writes this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Now, parenthetically, let me say that if you are dead, it means you can do what? You can do nothing. You're helpless, hopeless. This reflects us before we met Christ. And then Paul continues, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were objects of wrath. And that now comes the grammatical conjunction that makes all the difference between life and death for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Whew, got to take a, wow. just a, a sigh of relief for a minute. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a passage. It's awesome. Paul then follows up the first seven verses of Ephesians 2, which I just read, and writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, which is one of my all-time favorite verses. I recommend that we all look up Ephesians chapter 2 and marvel at these profound eternal promises later sometime. There is so much to consider in those verses, so I do want to read a comment from one of my recent favorite books entitled Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Mm. That's O-R-T-L-U-N-D. Bill, I don't know if you know Dane Ortland's writings, but they're great. Yeah, I do know a little about Dane. And, and here's his response regarding those words in Ephesians 2.4, because it gives us a remarkable window into our Lord's character. And we all want to know the heart, the character of our Lord to whom we have given our lives. I know this is a lot to take in here, but here's what Dane Ortland says in his chapter 9 of Gentle and Lowly. Quote, what Ephesians 2.4 says God is rich in mercy. It means that your regions of deepest shame and regret, and friends, we all have shame and regret about some things, your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but rather homes in which divine mercy abides. Wow. It means the things about you that make you cringe most, 
make Jesus hug you the hardest. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day, when we stand before him, quietly and unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart that we had. After hearing that quotation, we can only say, thank you, Jesus, that I know you and that you love me. And and we're so thrilled to know that. Thank you, Dane Ordland. Mm -hmm. That quotation is a concise way of expressing many of God's promises that we read in Scripture. But perhaps we've not put them together so clearly, so poignantly before as Dane Ordland has, and I thank him for that. Jesus is indeed rich in mercy. And in all of the New Testament, Jesus describes himself in only one verse. Did you know that? Incredibly, Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11, verse 29, when he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and here it is, here's the one place in Scripture where Jesus describes his own character. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this is our Lord speaking about himself. Mm. And in the way we talk, we might substitute the word humble for lowly, because we typically say that rather than lowly. But this is our Lord. This is our model for what it means to be Christ-like. This is the heart of God and the heart of our Father in heaven. Now, the James Webb Telescope has given us a new view of space as of July 12, 2022. And according to NASA, it has fundamentally altered our understanding of the expansiveness of the universe as we can now see many, many more galaxies with their millions and millions of stars. The more we learn about the vastness and complexity of creation, the more we learn about the vastness and the complexity of our Creator. Rather than disproving or rendering irrelevant the biblical worldview, scientific discoveries continue to show the genius of the one whose work these scientists study. When we look into the night sky, we remember that as we read about Jesus, we're looking at the face of God the Creator. And when we look at the stars, we remember Psalm 19:1, which makes you want to sing, The heavens are telling the glory of God. That's a poor rendering, but that's, that's Handel's Messiah, and that's what Psalm 19 once says, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and we remember that Scripture tells us God so loved. He so loved the world that he gave us his Son that we might know of his love for us and connect with him. And we know he loves the world because that's John 3.16. We cannot ever do enough to earn that love because Scripture simply says God loves us. Now, I don't understand that either, but I accept it by faith. Therefore, we can move forward and not waste time lamenting over our past mistakes, which we all have. So don't let your past become your present. I mean, we regret the past, but let's also not fear the present or the future. And in my lessons that I always give, I always want to share the good news of Jesus, no matter what the particular lesson is about. And I hope we're all intentional about sharing good news with others in our own unique way. And to end this talk, I conclude with a story about Charles Spurgeon, who was a renowned British preacher in the 19th century. He was called the Prince of Preachers. Apart from preaching and writing, he also spent time 
helping young pastors on his staff with their sermons. One Sunday, after hearing a young associate preach, Spurgeon met with this young man and told him that he had done a fine job but missed out on expressing the key element in his sermon to the congregation. The young preacher asked, what was that? Surgeon replied, there was no Christ in your message. We preach Christ here at New Park Church. Now the surprised inter responded, but sir, I was preaching from the book of Ezekiel. Spurgeon said, son, until you can find Christ in Ezekiel, you will not share my pulpit again. <laughs> and friends, you don't have to be a preacher because we are all called to share the good news of life in Jesus in our own way, wherever we are. And Bill, as Martin Luther would say, I think that's enough for today. Oh, that's a tremendous message. Uh, you have done a fantastic job, Greg, of going through Philemon and giving us that incredible hope. I just love the way we ended. Thank you Thank so much for being with me today. My pleasure. You bet. Once again, Dr. Greg Headington has been my guest. And as we study God's Word, I always say have a notebook out and a pencil ready. That's the difference between reading God's Word and studying it, according to my friend Dr. Mark Muska. So we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we'll have lots more uh, in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.